Last week, we kicked off a, uh, a journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we will probably be in this journey for the next six or seven years, and um, I have no idea how long we're going to be in this book, but it's going to be awesome. There's so much that happens, obviously, in the first gospel in the New Testament, and uh, it's brilliant. And we kicked off, we started it the way that the, the book of Matthew starts, with the genealogy and uh, the family tree of Jesus, and uh, all the, the cast of characters that makes up his family reunions, and, uh, and we talked about that. Uh, that is uh, that takes place the first half of the the book of the first chapter of Matthew, and then the second half of that first chapter into all of the second chapter of Matthew, it it describes and documents the arrival of Jesus, and so we're going to hit pause on that section, and uh, we're going to revisit that come December for obvious reasons, and uh, we're going to come back around, so we're going to wait on those verses. So today, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to spend time in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, in this particular chapter, it, uh, it, it introduces us to a, a, quite a character, uh, a guy by the name of John, and we call him John the Baptist. That's not because... He was part of the denomination. He was, uh, uh, more accurately, John the Baptizer. And uh, that was something that God had called him to do. And uh, this is Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby boy. And, uh, and we find him on the scene in chapter 3 doing ministry. And so uh, Matthew 3, and uh, we're just going to we'll read a few verses, talk about it, and then, and then uh, we'll get, make our way through the whole chapter today. And uh, so this is how it starts. Matthew chapter 3, first uh, six verses, it goes like this. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, and, uh, the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the, the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, and that he will make ready the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. I love this. I love this description. I just, what, what, but, but what's he wearing? And uh, thanks for telling me, Matthew. And uh, so he had a, a garment of camel's hair and, uh, and a leather belt. It's very, very first century. Uh, around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. I'm eating there today, actually. And uh, then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Um, the prophet Isaiah, in, back in the Old Testament, uh, this is a, a historic, famous prophet, he predicted uh, the coming of this forerunner, trailblazer of, uh, that's going to make a way for Jesus. And so he's going to come and kind of prepare the hearts of men and women for the coming of the Savior. And uh, in fact, the last book of the Old Testament is the, uh, the book of the prophet Malachi. Now, Malachi also speaks to a prophet that will come and as a forerunner uh, before the Savior comes. 
And uh, he is going, the, the way it's described by Malachi, is in the spirit of Elijah. And, uh, and so there's some, there's some similarities and there's some connections between John the Baptist and Elijah. Not the least of which, you're wondering, why do they describe he's wearing uh, a camel hair fur coat with a belt around it? Well, the way that Elijah's described visually is that Elijah was a, a very hairy guy, uh, rem- reminiscent of, of Chewbacca. And, uh, and so uh, Elijah had uh, needed to uh, wax his backs. But anyway, he, in, in the Bible describes him as wearing a belt. I don't know why. It's the bat utility belt. I don't know. Is it a fanny pack? I don't know. But uh, it's, it's kind of a visual connection that we get. The description in, in here describing John is sort of this kind of this reminder of this guy is sort of in the spirit of Elijah. So it's just kind of correlating, drawing some comparisons. Uh, the author is doing that very effectively. And, uh, and in Matthew 11, uh, we'll get there in a few weeks, Matthew 11, Jesus talks about uh, the, the fact that up until this point, up until now, the, the, the prophets in the law prophesied and spoke to things that were yet to be up until John the Baptist. So he said the law and the prophets up until this point spoke, prophesied up until the prophet John. And so John is, in a weird way, the way that Jesus describes it, he's sort of the last Old Testament prophet. And I know like we meet him in the New Testament, but he's sort of the, the last of a lineage of Old Testament prophets that were predicting the coming of the Savior because then the Savior came. Its prophecy be, took on a new a new face in the church. And so no longer are we predicting what's coming, it's the kingdom of God is here. And so now, uh, the distance or the time that has gone between Malachi, who is the last recorded prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi is the last chapter in the Old Testament, the, the time frame between the end of Malachi and now John the Baptist prophesying and preaching uh, as a forerunner trailblazer before Jesus arrives on the scene, that time frame is about roughly 400 years. So there has been no conversation. Uh, these are called the silent years. So there's been no uh, prophecies. There's been no really word from God directly for 400 years. And so this is why there are so many people that are drawn to John. This is why he is packing out uh, he's not going to Jerusalem to where the people are. He's in the wilderness eating bugs and honey, wearing uh, camel coats, and people are drawn to him flocking. He's, he's the Taylor Swift of his day. People are crowding to be around this guy, and it's, a lot of it has to do with not even the effectiveness or his charisma or anything like that. It has to do with this is the first time God's spoken in 400 years. It's a big, big deal. And so people are, are drawn to this, and they're, they're coming, and what he's preaching is a simple message. This is really the, old, the whole message that we're given in, in the book of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. It is at hand. It is here. It has uh, arrived. And so the kingdom of heaven is here. And so he is performing baptisms. Now, the baptisms, the baptisms that he's performing in the Jordan River are for the point and the purpose of the remission of sins. 
He's baptizing people, uh, and they are making a decision to be a part of baptism out of a, a, a posture of repentance. So that's his whole, his whole motive here is re- repentance. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And, and so part of the connection and the, the manifestation, the choice of repentance is the physical activity of baptism. And so that is what he's doing. They're making a decision that they want to, to repent before God. So we're going to move on. This is Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through uh, 12 is the next section we're going to talk about. So this is how it goes. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, uh, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. Uh, For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather up his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up all uh, the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, I get the impression that John the Baptist doesn't pull punches, and uh, he seems to be pretty, pretty direct. Uh, it's like, buddy, uh, tell us what you, how you really feel. Um, so he is, he's taking issue. The Bible says that uh, Pharisees and Sadducees are showing up for baptism. Now, I think people can read that and say they're showing up to be baptized. Uh, but I think what really the context is they're showing up for the event of this baptism. And, uh, and so these two groups of people, John takes issue with their motivation. And uh, he immediately calls that out. And uh, he says, you guys uh, are, are, are coming with the wrong motive. And so basically, if you put it this way, so Taylor Swift concert's happening. That's where all the people are. It's a big crowd of people. And so now, because there's a huge crowd of people, these two uh, opposing political parties are going to where the people are. And they were quite political, by the way. And so these two opposing political parties were showing up where the people are, probably a lot of it out of just pure curiosity and uh, to see what this guy is telling them, what he's saying, uh, how they can possibly catch him in, uh, in some blasphemy and uh, in sin. And so also probably for the purpose of maybe a little bit of grandstanding and uh, shaking hands, kissing babies to sort of... Uh, uh, hey, I'm, aren't I cool? I went to the Tay-Tay concert kind of thing. And so I don't know why I'm associating. This is probably the first time in history anyone's associated John the Baptist with Taylor Swift. And I would just like to say, uh, to God be the glory. Anyway, so uh, there, <laughs> there, there is uh, definitely some ulterior motives. Now, uh, we, we mentioned these. We read about Pharisees and Sadducees around here. And uh, they're, they're brought up a lot in the New Testament but uh, I want to give a, a now I want to give a brief definition who these people are. 
I mean, what's their, what's their deal? And so uh, these are two groups of people that are actually at odds. They're not partners in crime. They are on different ends of the spectrum. And so they're, they're sort of birthed out of the same place, but they've gone very, very different paths, right? So your Pharisees, we hear about these guys the most. They were certainly the larger group of people. And, uh, and truthfully, they're the group of people that have lasted and stayed uh, Sadducees had their, had their moment in the sun, and they're, they're really not a thing anymore. But Pharisees very much are. Uh, Pharisees were extreme, strict adherence to the law. Their life was the law of Moses. That was everything. And their goal and intention was to take as, as the moral elite that they were, they were to take the law, and they believe very much in the oral communication, the oral law, and they would interpret it for us lay people. And so, in case you didn't know, this is what this means. And so, they were so strict about the law, and, and so dedicated to it, they even added to it to continue to prop it up. And so, they were constantly giving new interpretations, new laws, new approaches, but their goal was that it was sort of a self-help plan for you as an individual to go purify yourself, make yourself holy before God, and so that God is pleased with you and your family. So that was their goal. And so they were very much uh, dedicated to the oral law and that tradition and uh, in, in helping people or, or forcing people uh, to discover their own individual right standing before God. The Sadducees, very different approach. Uh, these guys were very much attached to the temple. And so they weren't, really, they, they weren't really fond of going into the community and putting the law in people's individual hands. They were all about what took place at the temple. They, they, there's a history of priests, mostly high priests within the Sadducees, and they were very much interested in the sacrifices that you needed to make at the temple. And so they were funneling everything through that they were, not, they were very much opposed to the oral law. Uh, they did not like the Pharisees for communicating or, or, or trying to interpret the law of God. In fact, the Sadducees didn't really believe in the whole Old Testament. They, were, they, they believed somewhat in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. But beyond that, the words of the prophets, they, they disregarded it. Truthfully, the Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. They, believe, they didn't believe that God really had anything to do with us. There was no interaction between us. And so they were a way less spiritual, if you can use that word, a way less spiritual group of people and way more political. And so they had a very close working relationship with the Roman gover- government. In fact, that's, uh, they, the Sadducees had no authority or power to execute or kill someone. And so that's why the Sadducees worked in congruence with the Roman government to arrest and crucify Jesus. They used their political associations to, to get that done. And so these are very different groups of people. And again, two political parties are invading this crowd of people, and John calls them out and, and says that your motivation clearly is not repentance. Because neither group of people think they have any need for repentance. They, there's no need for them to repent for anything. They are 
uh, you have the moral elite, but then you have the social elite. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were wealthy, the social elite, the top of the uh, social ladder. And so they had no... These are common folks. We're not going to get in the dirty water and associate with these common, common people. And so it's clearly not repentance. And so they're convinced that that uh, they got their acts together, and yet John says, you brood of vipers. And uh, brood, offspring, you offspring of slippery, deceitful, nasty vipers. And so it is uh, not an endearing term. Uh, And then Jesus actually echoes, he quotes John the Baptist, he uses the same phrase again in chapter 12 of Matthew, and uh, it is actually in a similar conversation about similar subjects, primarily to the Pharisees, but he's talking about similar things, and at that point he says uh, in chapter 12, you'll know a, a tree by its fruit. So now we've got this association a connection between human beings being trees, being represented by trees, and those human beings bearing fruit, and the fruit being what distinguishes whether they're a good tree or a bad tree. And, and, and keeping in those lines, John says, you are, uh, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you need to be, you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, so in other words, you need to bear, you should be bearing fruit that has to do with, that is a result from your repentance and connection with God. So he's calling them out. So he says there's an axe laid at the root of your tree. You are, you're not a good tree. Now, this same conversation, it moves into a, uh, it, it, it's kind of paralleled. Or, or revisited, I should say, in the book of John. And this is, um, we're going to actually leave the book of Matthew for, for a second and go to the book of John. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 15. And, uh, and this is a famous sort of allegory imagery from Jesus. And he very much, he, he speaks to the same subject that John is hitting in this moment as he is speaking to the Pharisees, Sadducees. So uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15 of the book of John, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, dries up. They gather them, they cast them in the fire, and they are burned. Some of the same imagery, some of the same word usage, the same picture is being painted that are connection with God has nothing to do with our, our, our family tree, our lineage, uh, has nothing to do with our pedigree. John says, don't think for a second that because your people is Abraham, Father Abraham, that you're getting in just based on that. 
Now, we may not think in those terms in modern Christianity, but I've talked to a lot of people, and, uh, and they, they, they've used the same language in a different way. And so, well, my family's all been Catholic, so I'm Catholic. Like, have you ever been to Mass ever? No. My family's Baptist, and so I'm Baptist. Do, 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 are you involved? Are you? No, but that's what I am. So this is John saying, you can't, you can't go on pedigree. You can't go on family history or lineage. This is, he's bringing it down to your connection with God. You and him. And then what Jesus does, he even gives imagery. He says, if you're not connected in the vine... If you're not part of me and I'm part of you, if, you're not, if you don't trust and believe in me for your salvation, then you're a stick, unfruitful and discarded. Which is a scary thought, but everything is riding not on performance, not on our personal obedience, not on our goodness, but in trusting and believing Christ for all those things that Jesus is for us all that we need. And so um, what John says, he uses a weird kind of wordplay here. He says, uh, you can't count on your being sons of Abraham. In fact, God's going to raise up stones to be the sons of Abraham. And it's like, why the stones, man? Well, uh, there's a couple theories, and one of them is that the word stone so it would have been this whole conversation would have happened not in Greek but Hebrew or Aramaic, and so the the, the original word usage here stone is very close to the word sun. It's like one letter off stones and sun. So it's maybe a little wordplay, but I think there's a deeper uh, imagery that's happening. In fact, if uh, you, you don't need to turn there, but First uh, Peter chapter two uh, in that in that book is Peter's letter. And uh, Peter says that uh, Jesus is a living stone, and he is discarded by humanity. Humans cast him away. No thanks. And, uh, but then he goes on to say, same, same, just a verse later, you are also living stones, and you're part of God is building a spiritual house for a royal priesthood. So you're part of the, the building blocks of the new temple, the, 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 the house of God, the community of faith, the family of Jesus. So you're part of the, the building blocks of that. So I think it has more to do with just more imagery of who and what we are. And so what, what John's saying in essence is that you are counting on your bloodline just the fact that you are, you're Jewish and you are related to Abraham in some way. But here's the fact. God's raising up this group of Gentiles that previously would be completely disqualified, and he's now making a new family of anyone and everyone. Jesus is going into the adoption business, and he is adopting a new family that has nothing to do with family history, with what you have or have not done, how good or bad you have been. It has everything to do with trusting and believing Jesus with your heart and your life. That's it. All who believe are saved.
anyone, come to me all. Now he lets them know that, that there is a new approach to righteousness. And it's, it's not, it's, it's only secured in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Um, there is a, uh, a common, and I, I've noticed this more and more, just being a human being on this planet, that Christianity, the way that so many people think about it, talk about it, is uh, an approach to life. It's a, a methodology and an approach towards life. So it's like, that's a way. That's a way to do it. It's sort of uh, interpreted or talked about as if it's like um, a diet. You know, you could try that diet, or you can try this one, it, or an exercise plan. You could, you could try CrossFit and, you know, flip tires and hit them with hammers. You could try that, or you can go to Planet Crunch Fitness Land and, and go work, work the, the things and act like you know what you're doing which I always do them wrong. It's like, Chris, that's a leg press, and you're using your face on it. That's not how you do it. You strengthen my face. Um, this, is, this is not an approach to life. Christianity, so, I mean, if you, if you consider all the world religions that are available to everyone, and so consider Buddhism. So Buddhism is an approach. It's a way. It's a methodology. You could, you could do life this way, but then you get to the true faith of Christianity, and it's he is the way. He's not an option. It's this, and only this. He says, Jesus says himself, there's no way to the Father but through the Son. That's it. There's, there's one path. And that's this whole conversation is, that there's not, you can't just kind of, be good and hope you end up in a good place. Our salvation and our fruitfulness within that salvation are uh, all that's a work of grace. It's what God does in and through us, not that we do for Him. And it's all a, a product of being connected to the source, being connected to Jesus. Now, in, in Jesus' um, analogy about the vine and the, the vineyard and all that, um, He uses a couple words. He says, if, if you're not bearing fruit, then you're either taken away or you are pruned. Now, if you're not bearing fruit, he's saying, if you are connected to me and yet your life isn't fruitful. He said, there's two approaches to address that. Now, this is not being disconnected. That is a completely other category that he gets to later. He says, if you're connected, if you abide in me, I abide in you. And there's not fruitfulness happening. There's one or two approaches that he does. And that's, it's not something we do. He does. And the first phrase is takes away. Now, that sounds dramatic, like he's going to take us away, put us in the corner, put us in timeout, whatever. The, the original word used is iro, which is a, a verb to, that means to lift up. So... The phrase is, if you're not bearing fruit, Jesus will lift you up. Now, sticking with the, the vine analogy, the vine dresser analogy, uh, if, if a grapevine is 
uh, not being fruitful, chances are a lot of times it's because it's fallen off the trellis and it is actually in the dirt. And if it's in the dirt, it will not bear fruit. And so the vine dresser, it's his job to walk through and lift vines that have fallen back up on the trellis so that in, he oftentimes will wash it off, which also symbolizes baptism, and washing of the disciples' feet, but he will, he will lift it back on the trellis. Now, oddly enough, the trellis, if you look at them, they look eerily similar to a cross. Trellis often looks exactly, it's a, it's a cross bar. So it's like we are being reminded whose we are. So if you're not bearing fruit, maybe your eyes are fixed on you. We've gotten a little dirty and soily. We, back, we got back into humanity and trying to micromanage and make this all work in our own strength. And, and what the vine dresser does is reminds us, no, 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 in him you have been made complete. He is everything. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your salvation. He is your life. And then the pruning part, that's fun. I think this also ties into what John says about the, the winnowing fork, which is kind of a pitchfork, and, and, and sorting out, sifting through wheat and chaff, and letting the chaff kind of fly off. Uh, God is very gracious in pruning and sifting through the mess of our lives. He's very good at it. Now, we hate it. We despise the process. But he is an amazing pruner. And he prunes not to punish, but to, to produce fruitfulness. I, Gail posted a, and uh, I'm rarely on Facebook, and I just, by pure spiritual heavenly serendipity, I saw this. Gail posted a, a little thing. And I've heard this before, but it was beautiful. I shared it with Sonia. Thanks, Gail. I didn't like it, so you have no idea. I got to like stuff. But um, it was a beautiful little prayer. It just talks about a farmer uh, praying. Uh, a pastor asked a farmer to pray out loud, and the farmer's prayer goes like this. Lord, you know I hate buttermilk, but thank you for t- today. And you also know I can't stand lard. And the pastor's like, what, what have I done? What is going on? Lord, you, hate, you know I hate flour. It's like, this guy is off his rocker. But the end of the prayer goes like this. But God, you know I love buttermilk biscuits. And all this stuff that I can't stand, you take it and you mix it together and something beautiful comes from it. It's, it's, it's amazing. And that's what God's doing. He, he, he works all things out for our good, but in the moment, it does not feel good. It feels scary and frustrating and disappointing and we feel like I'm not winning and I'm not on top of things and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like God's at work even when you feel left and alone and, and to your own devices. God doesn't clock out. He's always working all things out for your good. That's what he does. And part of that is pruning us. Some of that is uh, being confronted with things that we don't want to be confronted with, addressing things that we don't don't want to address. God will even take things out of our life that we really, really like. But all that's part of the pruning process, and the key in all of that is trusting that the vine dresser knows what he's doing. He is God, 
I am not. Matthew 3, and this is the, uh, the grand finale of this chapter. It's a cool moment, special moment. This is uh, picking up in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. It's the baptism of Jesus. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answering him said, Permit it all at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Um, John and Jesus are related. John and Jesus are cousins. And uh, Mary, which is the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, who is the mother of John, are cousins. Uh, They were born about six months apart. John's a little older. And so this is uh, a a special connection. They grew up together playing Nintendo and and playing and skateboarding outside, doing all kinds of playing basketball. That's in the amplified version. (laughs) That's more detail. but something interesting Jesus said of John. He thought very highly of John. And uh, in fast-forwarding again to Matthew 11, Jesus says this in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's an interesting statement. He says, there's no one who's ever been born of a woman, which my count is 100% of everyone. Uh, no one is greater than John the Baptist. There's not a human better than John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist didn't have a very long, luxurious, amazing life. It was quite short, in fact. And he'll come up a few more times in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's not like he... I mean, he, he actually passed away. He was executed early in the process, and so he didn't get to see a lot of things that I know he would wanted to, wanted to see. So what did, what did he do? Why is he so special? Now, he was certainly humble. Now, the description of what he was wearing and eating in the desert is a description of humility. He's a lowly guy. This is not a, a, an aristocrat diet. He's not, I mean, he's eating bugs and honey. He's wearing a camel hair. That's, that's probably, I, I would imagine that would give you a bit of a rash. This is not a, a, a prideful person. He also, he, he went his own way. Zechariah was a priest. His father was a priest. He uh, was in the family lineage, the family business. Would it be? He continues on in the, in the, in the, in the activity, the, the tradition of being a, a, a priest, a Jewish priest. But his form of ministry looked way different. He goes out to the desert. He becomes like this nomad, this traveling uh, uh, circus. 
and, uh, and he's humble, and he, he doesn't go the way of Zechariah. He goes his own way. So those are beautiful things. He trusts God rather than tradition. He's a humble man, but I don't believe those are the... Plenty of people have been humble. Plenty of people have done their own thing and trusted God. What was, what was the thing? This is what I believe. I believe that the reason John the Baptist was so significant in the eyes of Jesus was because all John the Baptist talked about was Jesus. Every time John opened his mouth, he pointed not to himself, but to Jesus. He was the greatest pointer in history. And in this moment, John's humbly saying, it's similar to Peter when, when Jesus says, let me wash your feet. John's like, I, I, you should baptize me. Earlier he says, someone's coming after me that I can't even carry his sandals. That represents a servant's role and the lowliest of servant roles. The lowest form of a servant in a home at that point would be the guy washing feet carrying sandals around. No one wanted that job. That's why it was so significant when Jesus did that for the disciples. It was the lowest servant role imaginable. And John says, I'm not worthy of that role. The lowest, the the bottom, I'm not worthy of that place. So this guy understood his position and the loftiness, the amazing magnitude of the Savior. And he's saying, I can't baptize you. And Jesus is like, this has got to happen, buddy. I'm, I'm one of you. I am one of them. And so I go before, and then people follow. So he baptizes them. And in this moment, you get this cool occasion where the whole Godhead is present. The, the Son is there. The Spirit of God shows up in the form of a dove. God audibly speaks. After four hundred years of total radio silence, he speaks in a way that it is audible. And what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There is a um, another time this happens. And we'll get to it and we'll talk about more of the context when we get there, but I want to wrap up with this. Just, Just mentioning it where God audibly speaks and says the same thing. And I mentioned there's a, a, a lot of symbolism between John the Baptist and Elijah. There's also a lot of symbolism between John the Baptist and Moses. Uh, there's, there's purposeful uh, connections between those people. And speaking of Elijah and Moses, uh, Jesus, during his time of ministry, he, he ascends a mountain, he takes... Uh, three of his buddies with him. This is uh, Peter, James, and John. And he, he encounters God himself, his father. But he also encounters Moses and Elijah, who have passed on. So this is a, the most glorious, amazing staff meeting Zoom call in history. So Jesus is there communing with the, the Mount Rushmore of holiness. Now, Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law of God. And then you have God himself. And so, in this moment, Peter 
in, in all honesty, objectively speaking, me looking outside in, Peter is a fly in the wall. He's just lucky to be there. But, but Peter, he, he butts in. He's like, hey, guys, who said that? Peter, hey, guys, just want to say this. It's good seeing everybody. Elijah, you look great. How was that chariot? Was that fun? Moses, you look good, buddy. You're, you're, it seems like your speech impediment's cleared up. That's wonderful. Thank God for that. Everything good? Um, I just want to say to everyone, Jesus, it's a good thing I'm here. It's a good thing I'm here. What? And this is, this is his contribution. He's rationalizing this as mine. He's like, guys, it's a good thing I'm here because I am great at setting up tents. I'm like the greatest tent builder ever. And he says, I can build a tabernacle. I can build a tent for each of you. He turns into Oprah. You get a tent. You get a tent. You get a tent. Look under your seat. A tent! Look at this! So he says, Elijah, I can make you a tent. Moses, I'll make you a tent. Jesus, I'll make you a tent. So, so in Peter's mind, he's, he's putting everybody at the same playing field. He says, everybody gets equal billing, right? Elijah, the prophet's just as important as Jesus. Moses, the law, just as important as Jesus. And then, something that would, should permanently humble you, God himself audibly interrupts Peter. Peter, shh. That means, to me, I don't know that I'd ever speak again. God audibly interrupts Peter and says, Peter, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says the same thing, but then he adds something. He adds a a phrase that is so important. He says, listen to him. This is what it's all about. He's saying, the prophets serve their their role, but that's over. The law had a purpose. It was a placeholder. There was a reason for the law. God didn't accidentally give it. He gave it on purpose. He said, that time has come and has gone. Listen to him. Listen to Christ. John the Baptist captured that very thought. It was all about, listen to him. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the way. Listen to him. May we all be as described in Matthew 11, that that even us who are least in the kingdom, the least impressive, the least charismatic, the least talented, We are even far greater than John the Baptist because our whole life is about pointing directly to Jesus. Where greatness lies is completely different than what the world sells us. Greatness is not personal achievement or accolades. It's not financial success. It's not leaving a legacy. It's not becoming, becoming fame, famous or notorious or known. 
It has nothing to do with promotion. It has nothing to do with anyone even knowing your name. It has everything to do with who does your life point to. Because if your life points to you, that life is over and done with. It's burned up. It's over. It's exhausted. That's it. That's the end of the line. What's your great-great-grandmother's name? You don't know. And that's your great-great-grandmother. Now, some of you might know, but then go great-great-great. That's your family. But these names are forgotten. After generations, they're, they're in the wind. But the kingdom of God is forever, and it is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and the, king, the personification of that kingdom is Jesus. And may our lives in everything we do, in our weakness, in our failures, in our shortcomings, in our inabilities, in, in, in our, 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 our failures, in our dramatic clumsiness of just being human in this existence and doing things wrong, may it all speak to the goodness and the grace of our amazing God. May everything we do point to Jesus.